This is the magic silver box. And I like to emphasize, yeah, a little more, it's, you know, we're kind of straightforward here. I like to emphasize this is not a former shoe box merely covered by wrapping paper four years ago and gone through some wear. This is a magic silver box. Hey, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event I founded at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens in April 2015. This week on the podcast, we're looking at our event from December 10th, 2019, which featured Siri Hustvet, Helen Phillips, and Jason Tugaw. This is the second appearance at LIC Reading Series for both Helen Phillips and Jason Tugaw. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to hear the panel discussion from this event. If you want to hear the readings from these writers, just listen to our previous episode. And if you enjoy Jason Tugaw on this panel discussion, do check out our new video series with Literary Hub Virtual Book Channel, which is a series of alumni in conversation. You can check that out on Literary Hub, or you can also check out the first episode of that series on the LIC Reading Series YouTube page, and Jason Tugaw is in that first episode. Now, we will also hear from the Magic Silver Box in this episode, of course, because the Magic Silver Box always appears in LIC Reading Series panel discussions. Audience members put questions into the Magic Silver Box, and if that question is asked during the panel discussion, that audience member wins a prize. So let's start our panel discussion from December 10th, 2019 at LIC Bar with Siri Hustvet, Helen Phillips, and Jason Tugaw. We've three really great people with us here, and I'm so excited. The way this is going to work is we have someone hovering outside. Oh, they're smoking. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. They're hanging out. They'll come in later. Um, I'm going to ask a couple questions before we uh, get to the magic silver box, but I'm also going to really rely on the three of you um, to talk amongst yourselves because I have been a little under the weather and my head is kind of cloudy. So um, pardon my uh, cloudiness. We're going to see how it goes. Uh, but I do I do love that, uh, Siri, that you read that passage because it was is so much about these issues of time. And I actually was pulling um, <laughs> a, a, just a statement from later in, in the same book. Where is this here? Um, yes. To write a book is for all the world like humming a song or whistling a tune or striding down the street, skipping a little, and then breaking into a run before returning to a saunter. Mm. The most important thing of all is to keep time. And I wonder if you could each speak a little bit to the idea of time in your novels and um, time as, as, as a force and how you compose your work and create how the story is is made. I mean, and Helen also, this in, in your novel, the um, the sense of time and that early motherhood life is also very particular. Um, and you, I think you depict that so well. And Jason, I haven't read your entire novel, <laughs> but I'm sure that time comes up for you as well. <laughs> um, so whoever wants to start off on that, feel free. Well narrative itself is a representation of time right that this is i think something to say i i just gave a lecture in berlin to a, a psychiatric lecture but the what i was talking about was different models in science and how narrative is an important model in psychiatric work right mm -hmm. and the reason is there that the the way that 
diagnostic statistical manual works is that it's lists of symptoms. And a list is like, uh, it's a wonderful form, right? But a list is like serial stasis, mm. right? Mm. And the other, uh, 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 in neuroscience, it's been, I think it's changing, but it's been a map. The brain is like a geography, and then you locate various parts of the brain that will tell you, you know, what's going on. Yeah, locationism is a big thing in neuroscience still. A story represents time, motion, and movement. There is no story. A story cannot happen unless there's change. So we are all making stories, and stories are essentially deeply and profoundly about time. Sorry to do that, but I no, no, I, I, I can't help myself. I'm sorry. I I will say, uh, Siri really graciously read a, an earlier draft of this novel that was a lot longer and uh, spanned the same amount of time, but too much time in for each section of time. And it, actually, the sections are labeled by semesters. So it has to do, you know, it's like structured yeah, around yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, but 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 what happened was, I mean, Siri was basically like, "This is just too long," and it's uh, you're taking too much time to tell this story. Which also, when I went back to tighten it, changed the voice really dramatically. Because the relationship between time and voice is like very, that's a, that's very, very intimate. Um, and so the voice was made possible by the tightening of the time. Yeah, so, that's really, yeah. that's an interesting. Are you, are you able to think of an example of, of, of that? Or, yes. Yeah. Okay. okay uh, yes. So for example, in know. that section, the admission yeah. section, there yeah. are two other major student characters and they each had a paragraph, right? And um, what what it did was it it made it so that like the that character's voice was not doing its work because it was too busy trying to introduce all these things, and so the point of view was getting lost in describing these other characters who could be introduced later. Right, didn't need to be come up right then. That's one example. I'll give you another example. There's a lot of. There's a very good reason that there's a there's um, some pretty explicit sex in the novel, but but Siri it's was like writing, this, sex, Jason. this sex was like she was like the the if sex feels like porn, it doesn't really work in fiction. Um, for some good reasons, and some of them, and a lot of them, actually have to do with time. Yeah. It takes too long to describe sex like porn, huh. right? Yes. Honestly, it yes. just does. It's yeah. like it's like it gets gets boring. Yeah. So it had, and she was like, it maybe it needs to be like Rabelaisian, like so. I, it needed some <laughs> humor, and it needed some poetry, and it needed to be way condensed. It didn't need to be less explicit, no. But it no. didn't need to be like, like act by act, like 
like move by move every cum shot. Or should we shot. say blow by blow? But didn't need to be a blow by blow. <laughs> and I we and, didn't need that. No. And that was uh, that was really helpful because I was thinking of it as like don't censor me, right? But it wasn't that. It was a craft question. It was different, you know. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Well, you know, this is. I mean, I'm sure you think about this. I mean, we listened um, uh, to you and and. Uh, there's a, a tremendous economy, yeah. and uh, I I haven't read the book of the one-page stories, but uh, that is precisely about economy, mm -hmm. right? And 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 having a form in this case a strict form a word number. This is why I thought Twitter 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 <laughs> was going to be one of the great forms mm. literary forms. I thought. People said, oh, there's this Twitter thing. And I thought, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> 140 characters. Yeah. People will do wonderful things with it. Yeah. Or not. Mm. Or not. Or not. <laughs> but anyway, that's a kind of, uh, uh, yeah, a, a shrinking to essentials. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the uh, first chapter you read, which is, a, is suspense, uh, I mean, it, and it's using the devices of suspense, which is to move the reader forward quite quickly to your conclusion of that chapter. We know more is going to happen. But that she thinks there's no one in the room, and then the child is the voice of recognition, the identification of that there's really someone out there. Yeah. Add, add to that, Helen? Yeah, yeah that's so it. <laughs> in, um, I mean, the need, I was thinking a lot about compression, and it does take place, the entire book takes place over a very short period. It's about one week, um, a really dramatic and crazy and disorienting week. Um, but that the entire first section of the book is chapters alternating between this scene at home with the intruder coming in and then the protagonist, Molly, is a paleobotanist. And at the site where she works, they've been finding some really strange artifacts that are drawing mm. a lot of negative intention, attention, including an alternate version of the Bible. So yeah. the challenge right. I gave myself in writing mm. those opening sections was how I could... I like the feeling of cliffhangers. It's fun. I, it's just this human, maybe not the most sophisticated thing, but it's just so fun to read cliffhangers. And as an early reader, like as a child, I loved books that did that. And I was like, okay, how can I use that energy, that momentum of a cliffhanger to be leading towards these existential questions that I want to talk about, but using that momentum of, that we often associate with, um, page turners, which I think we use as a derogatory term sometimes, but how can we use that momentum in a way that takes us to a profound place? So I was thinking about that and, and compressing the action. So whenever I write something, the second draft of it is always much shorter than the first draft. For the 340 word stories, mm -hmm. the way I wrote that book was mm -hmm. I would write a thousand words really quickly. And mm. then most of my writing time was actually not writing time as much as cutting time. Mm -hmm. And that process is true for my novels as well. So The Need was a longer book. The Beautiful Bureaucrat was twice as long. The Need was a longer mm. book than it is. Um, because I, when you um, cut something down to the essential, that for me is very dynamic and interesting. I don't think I really answered the question about time, but 
anyway. It's okay. It's also it's also yeah. quite interesting what you're saying, and and I wonder is there a certain freedom is going to the page and just saying I'm going to write this much. It's just going to get clipped later because I think there's some some I know we have some younger writers in the audience too who maybe um, there's a censorship that happens to go. Oh, I need to edit as soon as I get to the page and I stop, but it sounds like there's this process of knowing this is my process and it is going to get much shorter. Yeah, I, I don't know how anyone could write. I mean, the only way I can write is by knowing even as I'm typing, okay, this sentence may very well go. Because otherwise, if I don't have that freedom always in my mind of getting rid of it, then I could never create it in the first place. So, so yes, I always, um, and I keep a running list as I'm writing of just self-hatred comments about it. I'll be like, <laughs> This dialogue on page three is absolutely terrible. I'll actually type that out and just have that. But then I can keep going. So that's how I do it. Because you have to trick yourself. That almost sounds like you're writing with multiple selves. Maybe so to some degree. Yeah. I think everybody writes with multiple Mm. selves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think there is an editorial self. Mm -hmm. Um, But... You know, this is like the old lady uh, advice. I have understood very deeply that one has to be in a state of profound relaxation mm. to write well. Mm. And, and, and that's just true. And whether you're editing soon after, which I often do now, I call it combing. <laughs> I go back mm. to what I've written and comb it. And then I feel everything behind me is combed. I can comb it again, but you know, and then I move. But I think these are these are all different ways of working. But you have to be open at some point to what is happening. Maybe to the blow by blow sex scene. Yeah. So then you can <laughs> trim it down. Well, you know, the narrator of this novel I, I based on someone I know, my niece's ex boyfriend. And uh, he could Book not dedication. be. We have very little in common, uh, <laughs> or like I'm. I'm really not like him. And right. actually, it was very relaxing to write in a voice where I'm mimicking somebody really different from me because it's like I'm getting outside of my own crap, you know. And um, that also. But then I would start asking myself in situations, like I'd be at work and I'd be like, what would Donnie do in this situation, right? (laughs) Maybe he would have like a way more badass approach to this than I have. And maybe I could learn a little bit from that. Ah. (laughs) It's kind of like embodying somebody else in in your writing. It brings me to another prompt here I want to bring to you from your own words before getting to the magic silver box. And I think, I, I hope I'm... I hope I'm not misquoting you, Jason, because I wrote this down as you were reading from your excerpt from your novel. I think it was something to the effect of um, somebody has to know what's going on in everyone's head. That's where the story is. Is that mm-hmm. approximately correct? Okay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another another thing I'm cr- cribbing here from Siri um, from this essay collection. Uh, when I write a novel, I always feel as if I'm dredging up old memories trying to get the story right. But how do I know what story is right? Why one story and not another? Um, and I think that you're, you're all writing works where there, there are actually multiple stories in the story that end up making the story. So how, how, what is, what is the question of, am I getting the right story even mean to you in this context? 
I think uh, you know the uh, beginning of that essay is is really about fiction, right? So there's no documentary truth when a person writes fiction. There's nothing that it's measured against. You can write anything. There, uh, all, all possibilities are open. So the question is, how does one know what's right and what's wrong? You know that question writers get, I'm sure some of you, you go somewhere and they, someone says, where do you get your ideas? Mm. And everyone, you know, the writers, uh, among writers, they roll their eyes and think it's the stupidest thing in the world. It's actually a profound question, right? It's a profound question and it is very unexamined <laughs> as a philosophical problem. How do you know what's right and what's wrong? Well, I think you know what's right because it feels right. But why does it feel right? <laughs> I mean, why does it have to be like that? And you know when you're looking at the page or you have to get rid of something. Yeah. Or that you've done it wrong. You've, you've moved the story in a direction that feels wrong. Well, there's no measurement for that. It's not a science. But I think they're, you know, thinking about that, it's, it's about emotional truths. And the stories that are being created are somehow linked to memory in terms not of what happened or that it's real or that you're the narrator, right? It's that something about the unfolding of this narrative and the people in it has an emotional resonance for the writer. That is the only, I think, explanation that we can make. Uh, it made me think about uh, the beautiful bureaucrat, actually. Like, there are these two characters who, there's, so there's a protagonist who's like working in this cubicle, doing this mysterious work. And there are these two characters who keep barging in. And one has a bad breath. I, I, and one has a name. I can't remember the two names put together. Trisha Finney. Trisha Trish and Tiffany. Yeah. The parents so, couldn't pick, so they named her Trisha. So, like, they're all stuck in this building together, and we know we're following the protagonist. But those other two characters clearly have stories that we don't have access to. And there was something so interesting about, like, just knowing that they have a relationship to this job too. And we don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And then, and I don't know. I'm just curious about that. Like, yeah. did you write more of them? Were they in cut? The book was, yeah, the book was a lot longer than yeah. it was. But the exploration wasn't really into those characters. Okay. Those characters are, they're almost symbolic in the book. The New York Times thinks too symbolic. But, oh. <laughs> but they can have their opinion. Um I just felt like they were like portals into no knowing there's all this shit we don't know. Yeah, you know? yeah, and the protagonist, I mean, in that book, the protagonist, Josephine, is um, her job, well, this is kind of a spoiler, but I'll try to be subtle about it, but her job involves having to contemplate other people's lives all day long, every day. Um, and I would say the need is really, I, it is a book, what the book is about is all of the, infinite possible stories that one's life could have. Mm. Like the story where you turn right rather than left and that causes you to be in a car accident or not be in a car accident. Because I have, I assume everyone does this, mm. but from the time I was a small child, I would always have this feeling mm. when, when something almost happened of one life veering off. Like mm -hmm. my path is this way, but mm -hmm. that other Helen, something happened to her or 
I had a jam sandwich and she had a butter sandwich and therefore we are different. The, I, and, and it is a scientific idea that's hard to prove, this idea of multiple parallel universes, that every iteration of the world that could possibly exist does exist. And the Borges story, the Library of Babel, is another way of um, speaking about that, um, of just describing an idea of infinity with just small changes. Um, but in the need, I, I wanted um, the protagonist to have to face the idea of um, all the different um, possible lives that she could have. Mm -hmm. And in order to, to ask the question, could you ever take someone else's pain as seriously as you take your own pain? Mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. I, I think what you said about story was so interesting. Like the list of symptoms is not a story. And we need stories because it's very hard for us to understand anything if yeah. we don't have a story. Yeah. And if we can use, I think the most valuable use of story is if you knew someone's full context at any time. Like we never, unfortunately, I can't know the full context of everyone in this room. That would be amazing to know each of your full contexts. And if I did know your full context, I would love and adore you, I think, in many but cases. Do you, th do you think that there is full context that is possible to be known? I mean, no, okay. I, I don't. I mean, I think it's even just hard. checking. Just I, checking. I think it's hard to know. <laughs> it's hard to know your own full context, right? But well, it's a, the full think, context think, yes, would be the I, same I, to you as it would be to anyone else. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, I think this is an impossibility. Yeah. But it's something to aspire to, to think if someone gives you the finger because you did whatever, you can be pissed at them and annoyed at them or if they cut you in line or you can be like, hmm, I'm wondering what their full context is. Of course, I always do that with taxi drivers. Try to think you know the context. really mean taxi driver you get in and he's, uh, he, he, in New York it's always that he's so, so, so upset. And then I think, well, who did he have in his cab <laughs> before, right? And then you can say, and then I can usually see if I, you know, ask him a nice question or something that some, not everyone, but some people get very relaxed and the whole mood mm. changes. Mm. And that's a, there's a, little context thing. Yeah. It can be exhausting to be that open sometimes. It's a context too, yeah. Um, I think we're going to dive into the magic silver box. Yeah. Are you guys ready for it? Yeah. Okay. Um, this is how, let me get the props. <laughs> because there are props. So we have to determine who's going to get the first question. And this is how we do it. Um, I'm thinking of an animal. It's in my head. I'm going to give you a clue. Um, and you're each going to guess an animal. And whoever is closest to the animal I'm thinking of will get the first question. How do we assess closeness? Well, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. We'll see. I know that's sometimes it comes up. Mm. Taxonomy, right. right? Yeah. yeah. So, this is an animal. Oh, you're gonna give clues. I'm just giving one. Oh, okay. This one. <laughs> this is an animal that uh, can be found on the plains of Africa. Zebra. Helen's going with zebra. Siri. Lion. 
Jason? Um, I'm going to say, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. What? I had what you could. I what? can give you the one I wanted. Antelope. No, I, I know what it is. Okay. I, no, I'm going to, I want an uh, orangutan. Okay. Oh, wow. All right. A zebra, lion, and planes, but not the planes. Orangutan. There's good plane problem too. So sorry. No, no, no. Sorry, um, but there's going to be no question here because I actually have a collection of plastic animals in my bag, and I was holding a lion. Oh, oh. my goodness! Yes. So okay. the first question will go to Siri. She's and yeah. the asker of this question will not only get. A plastic lion. <laughs> you will also get a gift certificate to the LIC Corner Cafe, which is a lovely cafe in this neighborhood. Yes, that not only has coffee and tea, but baked goods made in-house that are lovely. Pies, quiches, sandwiches, cookies, muffins. What am I, scones? Seriously. <clears throat> The, hmm. They make focaccia. Yeah. All right. So it is so good. Um, the question, and I hope you're still in the room, is what book, Siri, do you put under the tree for your 12-year-old self? Mm. With, I guess with Christmas oh. coming upon us, this is the wow. question. What book do you put under the tree for your 12-year-old self? We have a very excited audience member who's getting a plastic line in it. Gives That's right. No. So, I mean, I actually, I, 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 I know the answer. uh, uh to this and, and because the 12 year old self was absolutely um, flattened by both Jane Eyre and David Copperfield. Take your pick. <laughs> A twofer. A twofer. <laughs> All right. Good question. Siri, you're out of the running for the next question. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, the animals are a hit, so let's do it again. I have another animal. Uh, Helen and Jason, we're going with an animal that is gray. Jason. Rat. Oh, rat. Okay. That's Someone's it. like, please give me a plastic rat. <laughs> Helen. Elephant. Yeah. There are a lot of gray, gray animals. Or a whale. Yeah. What, what do you want to go with? Uh, elephant. Okay. Always go with your first instinct. There it is. You guys oh, are strangely nice. spot on. We never get exact replies, but the answer was elephant. This never happens. Something weird is happening up here that you guys are guessing exactly. Some little. You clearly looked at my bag of animals <laughs> before the panel discussion. Okay. Um, okay. So this person is going to get uh, not only a plastic elephant but also a gift certificate to the Astoria Bookshop. <gasps> it's good for in-store purchase. It's in a lovely envelope here with the address on it. Handy. Okay, elephant, that was Helen, yes? Okay. <clears throat> Helen, <laughs> the question is, describe the first job you hated Oh, who asked this? Are you here? Are mm -hmm. you here? Are you here? Guess what, Helen? You're getting a gift certificate to the Astoria oh Bookshop <laughs> and a plastic Thank elephant. Um, the first job I hated. 
Well, you could read the beautiful bureaucrat. <laughs> Cubicle life. Let's see. I, I've had weird jobs. Did I hate them? They were so awkward. Um, I don't know. Okay, this is a weird job. I, I don't want to say I, I didn't hate it, though. But can I still talk about it? Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, sure. Um, I had a job when I first moved to New York and I was really broke where I was a restaurant spy, like a mystery shopper at restaurants I had that and job. bars. <gasps> really? Yeah. It's Two kind of a great people. job because you get, they don't pay you a lot to do no. the review, but I got uh, some money to buy things, to buy food mm -hmm. and stuff. Yeah. I don't think, I think we signed a non-disclosure agreement and we can't talk about the name of the company. Oops. We'll have to compare notes afterwards. Can, can you tell me what you did? I don't know about this so, job. No. Yeah. No. no. I, I just, I just want to know so what the job I would was. go, we would, I would be assigned to go to different bars and restaurants around New York City and pretend to be a regular patron. Uh -huh. But in fact, I would be doing research and then later fill out a survey like did the bartender give away any free drinks or oh. did the yeah 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 or what else Spy. like what else like did the or um just was it clean oh, were the yeah. tables clean were were you given fresh water how long did it take you to get served right all these it wouldn't be a cute little place it would be more of corporate type restaurants yeah right um and yeah, and I, but sometimes it, it you was get, free food. Yeah, it was free yeah. food. But sometimes you get sent back to the same places. And so there was one bartender who befriended us, and he started giving us free drinks. Oh, and then no. I was like, "Wait, is that a? Do they look fondly on free drinks or no. not for regular no, I don't customers?" Think so so then it became you. a real ethical issue. And then I got fired. I lost that job pretty quickly because I never was critical, so I wasn't very useful to them. But I, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can, I mean, waiter, you know, wait, waiters yeah, and bartenders. It's not like you want to be the person who's, and they were, they were lovely people. I found yeah. that it took a long time to get reimbursed and that was not, I didn't enjoy that. Yeah. But the food was in your belly. They did a lot <laughs> of a Helen was getting free drinks, so yeah. she didn't need to get reimbursed. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. It was under the table. Um, that's amazing. I can't believe you guys both had that job. I know. I'm, I'm impressed too. Yeah. It wasn't a hateable job though. I'm sorry. It's not a good hateable job. You're too, you're too, um, willing to understand everyone's context. I think to truly hate <laughs> your employer. Sorry. I'm too Pollyanna. I can't help it. All right. We're going to go for a final question with Jason. It's a, it's a, it's a short question, but a, you know, like, I don't know. I see how you're going to answer this. Um, and you don't get a plastic animal. Oh, sorry. Oh. I mean, there's no guesses to have. You're the one. Yeah. Um, but you do get one of our most baller level gift certificates ever because it is $25 to Sweet Leaf Coffee. And there are several oh. Sweet Leaf Coffee locations. Three of them are in Long Island City. Ooh, one's in Greenpoint. Is that it? That's all of them. Okay. Um, <laughs> they make really, really, really good coffee. Um, and the question, Jason... Why the brain? <laughs> Anyone? Why the brain? Oh my goodness! You're gonna get a gift certificate to Sweet Leaf Coffee. Here. No one's no one's copying to asking that question. No. Okay. Um, here. Here we go. So okay, well I have t I have two answers. One answer is that it's 
it's it's just right here. It's so close. It's so close and so remote, right? And it's like it's obviously doing a lot to make me happen, right? And to make you happen. And it's like, you know, less than an inch away from where I'm touching, and I and I and it, it, but so far away. So that's one reason. Uh, the other reason is that it's just. Well, it's in the book, but um, my family had this thing where they said there's something wrong with our blood. It affects our brains, and that's why we behave the way we do, which means that's why we, like, beat you up or abandon you or, um, you know, do all kinds of terrible things. Um, So I decided to, like, take them up on that and do the research and find out, like... Like, what could that mean to me and tell my version of the story? And I just got obsessed. Talk talk about emotional resonance with your material, as you mentioned before. Well, listen, guys, I think we need to give a big round of applause to Helen, Siri, and Jason. Thank you so much. Normally at this point, I would announce our readers for our next event, but as I said, we're taking a brief hiatus. If you signed up on the email list, you'll know when we're coming back. But we do now have a podcast, and we have recordings of all of our past events, and it's coming out every week. It's been out for a few weeks now. You can find it on Literary Hub, on Lit Hub Radio. It's all on Apple. It's all in all the places, LIC Reading Series. We have uh, on Tuesdays the readings, and on Thursdays the panel discussions. So go check it out. Check out some past events. Thank you so much. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.